your host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 23 of the Crime Bistro podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I'm enjoying a hot matcha latte, so grab yourself a fresh brew, and let's get into the infamous case of the Black Dahlia. On the morning of January 15, 1947, just before 11 a.m., Betty Bursinger was taking her child for a walk in a Los Angeles neighborhood when her eyes fell on something that she first assumed to be a mannequin. Another look revealed that the sight was much more sinister, and she was instead looking at the posed body of 22-year-old Elizabeth Short, later dubbed the Black Dahlia. Panicked, she grabbed her daughter and ran for the nearest phone to call the police. First responders arrived at the horrible scene quickly and were able to identify Elizabeth using her fingerprints on record, allowing the media to start quickly reporting on the grisly murder. Elizabeth's striking beauty and her iconic Black Dahlia nickname have kept this case in the public eye for decades, and though her killer has yet to be identified, this case is arguably one of the most famous and enduring unsolved murder cases across the world. Elizabeth was born on July 29, 1924, in the Hyde Park section of Boston, Massachusetts, and she was the third of five daughters to Cleo and Phoebe Short. Her family relocated to Portland, Maine briefly before settling in Medford, Massachusetts, where she was brought up. Her father was a wealthy man until the stock market crash of 1929, which left him broke nearly overnight. The following year, his car was found abandoned on the Charleston Bridge, and it was assumed that he had committed suicide by jumping into the river. This occurred when Elizabeth was only five years old, and her mother was left to raise the five children on her own. Elizabeth suffered from several health conditions, including asthma and severe bronchitis, which forced her to undergo lung surgery at the young age of 15. In order to avoid the cold, which was further damaging to her health, she had to live with relatives in Florida during the winter while she spent the rest of the year in Medford. These conditions also meant that she had to drop out of Medford High School when she was only a sophomore. At a young age, Elizabeth had developed a strong affinity for cinema, and by her teenage years, she had set her sights on becoming an actress. In 1942, her father revealed that he had actually been alive the entire time, and that he had started over with a new life in California, a revelation that must have been beyond shocking for the entire family. Upon learning this, Elizabeth went to Vallejo to live with him when she was 18, but the two did not end up getting along, so she moved out in January of 1943, to start working in the base exchange of Camp Cook in Lompoc, California. During this period, she was living with friends, including an Air Force sergeant who was reportedly abusive. Eventually, she relocated to Santa Barbara, where she was arrested for underage drinking in September of 1943. The juvenile court ordered her to return to Medford, but she moved to Florida instead. In Florida, she met a decorated U.S. Army officer named Major Matthew Gordon Jr., and the two started a relationship which ended up in there getting engaged. Unfortunately, however, he passed away in an airplane crash in August of 1945, just before the end of World War II. Following the death of her fiancé, Elizabeth moved to Los Angeles in July of 1946, where she met Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling, who was stationed at the naval base in Long Beach. She started to work as an actress to support herself while she still dreamed of being a part of the Hollywood acting scene and she rented a room near the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard. It was there that she was living in the year 1947, a beautiful Hollywood hopeful on her own in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, Elizabeth would never get the opportunity to break into the world of acting, 
Rather, she was about to become the victim of one of the most famous unsolved murders in American history. It was the morning of January 14, 1947, when Elizabeth's body was found in the Lemert Park neighborhood by Betty Bersinger and her three-year-old daughter while they were taking a morning walk. She had been posed in such a manner that it appeared at first she was not even human, and Betty mistook her for a mannequin until closer examination revealed the horrible truth. Elizabeth's body was found just a few feet from the sidewalk and was extensively mutilated and cut. Despite this, there wasn't a single drop of blood at the scene, which immediately indicated that she had been killed elsewhere. She was discovered in horrific condition, and I will provide a warning here. I'm not going to go into great detail, but it is quite the disturbing picture. Her body was naked and had been cut in half at the waist, and her blood had been drained. Her face had been cut from the corners of her mouth to her ears, creating what's known as a Glasgow smile. There were numerous cuts and bruises on her breast and thighs because entire sections of skin had been removed. She also had some organs removed and her head had been badly beaten. The autopsy showed that she had ultimately died due to her lacerations and a hemorrhage on her head from the blows to her face. And her time of death was estimated to be during the late evening of July 14th to early morning of July 15th. Near her body, detectives found a heel print and a cement sack with traces of blood presumably that had been used to transport her body to the lot after she was killed. The investigation was led by the Los Angeles Police Department, who asked the FBI for assistance on the case. It was able to identify her body within only 56 minutes after receiving blurred fingerprints via sound photo, which was a primitive fax machine that was used by news services. Her prints actually appeared twice in the FBI's massive collection, First, because she had applied for a clerk's position at the commissary of the Army's Camp Cook in California in January 1943, and second, because she was arrested by the Santa Barbara police for underage drinking several months later. Her mugshot from this was in the FBI's files, and it was provided to the press. Horrifyingly, once she had been positively identified, Elizabeth's mother, Phoebe, had not been informed by police. Instead, she learned that her daughter had died when reporters from the Los Angeles Examiner called her, pretending that Elizabeth had won a beauty contest. They used this to trick her mother into giving them details about Elizabeth before they finally revealed why they had really called. And this poor treatment of Elizabeth by the press became an unfortunate theme in this case from there on out. Elizabeth was given the now-famous name the Black Dahlia by the press for her rumored penchant for sheer black clothing and for the Blue Dahlia movie that was out at the time. As the media dove further into Elizabeth's life, they started to brand her as a sexual deviant, and it wasn't just the press. One police report read, quote, This victim knew at least 25 men at the time of her death, and at least 25 men had been seen with her in the 60 days preceding her death. She was a known teaser of men, end quote. She was completely defamed in the media, and rumors were spread that she was a prostitute, and some claimed that she liked to tease men because she was a lesbian. Note that, of course, it is important for the police to understand who was in Elizabeth's life at the time of her death, but referring to her in this way is completely unacceptable, and it draws focus away from what is actually important, which is catching her killer. The media's treatment of Elizabeth is incredibly sad, and though in true crime cases public awareness is always crucial, there is absolutely no excuse and no justification for how she was portrayed as a victim. The sensation that surrounded this case did not help the investigation at all, and shortly after the murder occurred, close to 50 men and women went to the LAPD claiming to be her killer. Detective Brian Carr, who worked on the Black Dahlia case, has said, quote, The case itself took on a life of its own. Early on, I think for two months, it was front-page news in all the local papers every day, end quote. 
The disturbing details of this case fascinated the public, and at the same time, tabloids had become seemingly obsessed with painting Elizabeth as overly sexual and promiscuous. In addition to the confusion caused by false reports, there was only one possible witness who had seen a black sedan parked in the area in the early morning, but couldn't provide anything besides that. Early suspicions by the police were that the murderer may have had skills in dissection and surgery because her body had been so cleanly cut and drained of blood. Based on this, the FBI actually investigated a group of students at the University of Southern California Medical School in mid-February of 1947. However, this did not lead to anything significant. The investigation, of course, looked into the days leading up to Elizabeth's death and found that on January 9th of 1947, five days prior, she had returned to L.A. after a trip south to San Diego with a man named Robert Manley. Robert told police that he had picked her up on January 8th and taken her to the Biltmore Hotel in downtown L.A., and she was seen there by hotel workers while she was talking on a payphone. Some people even reported seeing her about a half mile away from the Biltmore at the Crown Gill Cocktail Lounge that same evening. Initially, Manley seemed an obvious suspect. However, he had returned to San Diego before her death, and he was able to pass a polygraph. He was also administered sodium pentothal, or a truth serum, so police were fairly confident in his innocence. On January 21st, six days after Elizabeth was found, a person claiming to be her killer placed a phone call to the office of James Richardson, the editor of the Examiner newspaper. The caller taunted the newspaper editor and said that he would send over some, quote, souvenirs that would prove they were the real killer. Three days later, on January 24th, a suspicious envelope addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner was noticed by a U.S. postal worker. This letter had been addressed using letters that were individually cut out and pasted to the envelope, and the front of it read, quote, Here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow, end quote. Inside that envelope, the postal workers found Elizabeth's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen on the cover. The envelope had been carefully cleaned using gasoline, similar to how Elizabeth's body was found, and this was done as a technique to hide fingerprints. The same day that this envelope was received, a handbag and a black suede shoe was reported to have been seen on a garbage can very near to where her body was found. On January 26th, another letter arrived. This was a handwritten note that read, quote, Here it is, turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m. Had my fun at police. Black Dahlia Avenger, end quote. This letter included a meeting time and place, so police were there on January 29th, but the author never arrived. Afterwards, another note was made with cut and pasted letters and sent to the examiner reading, quote, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified, end quote. And this letter had also been wiped with gasoline. Police did interview Mark Hansen since his name was on Elizabeth's address book, and in the coming weeks, they would interview over 150 men, still naming no suspects. And at this point, over 750 investigators from the LAPD and other police departments had worked on the case, and City Councilman Lloyd David had even offered a $10,000 reward for information, which today would be worth over $100,000. The months after Elizabeth's death continued on without any viable leads, and by the spring of 1947, her case officially became cold, and that is how it would remain. John Douglas, a retired FBI special agent, is one of the FBI's first criminal profilers who was assigned to the case, and he created a profile for Elizabeth's killer. 
He believed this to be someone who knew Elizabeth well at the time of her murder, rather than a random act of violence. Douglas believed that this individual wanted the world to see who Elizabeth was, and that he felt she had wronged him in some way. This investigation overall has yielded over 150 potential suspects who were interviewed and over 500 confessions, and no charges have ever been filed. However, among all the saturation in this case, some suspects have made their way to the forefront. One such person was made famous in relation to the case when in 2017, British author Pew Eatwell announced that she had solved the case and published a book titled Black Dahlia, Red Rose, The Crime, Corruption, and Cover-Up of America's Greatest Unsolved Murder. She claimed that the killer was a man named Leslie Dillon, who was briefly considered the prime suspect by police but ultimately found to be innocent. Dillon worked as a bellhop, and Pew Eatwell believes that he murdered Elizabeth under order from Mark Hansen, the man whose name is on the address book with her belongings. Hansen was a local nightclub and movie theater owner who had worked with Leslie Dillon in the past. Hansen himself was also a suspect for a time, but he claimed he had given the address book to Elizabeth as a gift. Allegedly, Elizabeth had stayed with Hansen for a few nights and had spoken with him over the phone on January 8th. Eatwell believes that Hansen was in love with Elizabeth, and when she denied his advances, he called on Dylan to, quote, take care of her, end quote. The interesting point to consider here is that Leslie Dillon had worked as a mortician's assistant, where he would have learned how to drain the blood from a body. He also knew details of the crime that hadn't been released to the public, according to police records. He knew that Elizabeth had a rose tattoo on her thigh that had been cut out. Dylan also claimed to be an aspiring crime writer, and he told authorities that he was writing a book about the case, but this never panned out. Pew Eatwell's other major discovery was a crime scene found at a local motel, the Astor Motel. She found a report by the owner, Henry Hoffman, that on the morning of January 15th, he walked into one of his cabins to discover it, quote, covered in blood and fecal matter, end quote. In another cabin, he found women's clothes wrapped in brown paper, also stained with blood. Instead of reporting this, Hoffman just cleaned up the scene, since he had been arrested for domestic violence only four days earlier and did not want another interaction with police. Eyewitness reports are uncorroborated here, but they do claim that a woman resembling Elizabeth was seen at the motel shortly before the murder, so it is possible that this was the actual crime scene. Another popular theory in this case connects Elizabeth's death to a series of murders that took place in Cleveland, Ohio between 1934 and 1938 in the Kingsbury Run District. These were famously known as the Cleveland Torso Killings, as most of the bodies had been dismembered similar to the way Elizabeth's was. The victims of the serial killer were all drifters and sex workers, which propelled this theory since Elizabeth was undeservingly portrayed as so in the media. However, the mutilations that accompanied the torso killings were just as surgically precise as what had been done to Elizabeth's body, which is the most compelling detail to this theory. Other details include the murder weapon that was used, which was a butcher knife, as well as the attempts to clean the body after death. There were also rope burns found on Elizabeth's body that matched several victims of the Cleveland killer, and all the bodies had been manipulated into suggestive positions as she was. Since the Cleveland torso killings remain unsolved, there is currently no way to verify this theory or even to really begin investigating it properly. This case hit headlines in a big way in 2013 when an article published in the San Bernardino Sun detailed an investigation conducted by retired police sergeant Paul Dosti 
author Steve Hodel, and a police dog named Buster. According to the article, they uncovered incriminating evidence against Steve Hodel's father, Dr. George Hill Hodel, who Steve has long believed to be Elizabeth's killer, a soil sample taken from his property that tested positive for decomposed human remains was this piece of evidence. After his father passed away in 1999, Steve was going through his belongings when he noticed two photos of a woman who had a striking resemblance to Elizabeth, which is when he started his own investigation. These photos have been reviewed many times by experts and no one has ever been able to conclusively decide if she was the woman in them. He pored over newspaper archives and witness interviews and even filed a Freedom of Information Act to obtain the FBI's case files. He had a handwriting expert compare samples of his father's writing to the letters sent by the alleged killer, and the analysis showed there was a strong possibility of a match but was officially inconclusive. The most damning piece of evidence was that George Hodel had been a doctor. Elizabeth's body had been cut in a way that was consistent with a hemicorporectomy, which is a surgical procedure that cuts the body in half beneath the lumbar spine. And when Hodel was attending medical school in the 1930s, that procedure was being taught. Steve also went through his father's archives at UCLA, where he discovered a folder of receipts for contracting work on his childhood home, the most notable being a receipt dated a few days before the murder for a large bag of concrete, the same size and brand as the one found near the crime scene. Hodel was able to collect enough evidence to compile into a best-selling book titled The Black Dahlia Avenger, The True Story. Steve Lopez, a columnist from the Los Angeles Times, requested police files from the case to fact-check this book, where he discovered a short list of main suspects written shortly after the murder, and George Hodel was on that list. He was actually under so much scrutiny by police that his home was bugged in the year 1950 so that police could monitor him. Because of this, there is a chilling recording of a conversation between the doctor and an unknown person, during which Dr. George Hodel said, quote, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary because she's dead, end quote. Despite all of this, he was never charged. However, interestingly, in 2004, Stephen R. K., the head deputy for the L.A. County's district attorney office, said that if George Hodel was still alive, he would have enough evidence to indict him for the murder. All that being said, this is currently the most credible theory that is attached to Elizabeth's case. Elizabeth Short has become an icon of true crime since her brutal murder so many decades ago, and now that most of the prime suspects in her case have passed away themselves, it is unlikely there will ever be a conclusion in this case. This, however, has stopped no one from carrying out investigations and devising their own theories, so we are left with a massive amount of circumstantial evidence, yet still with an unsolved mystery. Personally, the most credible explanation for Elizabeth's death is the theory made famous by Steve Hodel. Though there is no official physical evidence against Dr. George Hodel, there are far too many possible connections, and his medical education is a major point that aims toward his potential guilt. The murder itself may never be solved, however, it will likely remain one of the more infamous in true crime history, and the Black Dahlia is a name that will not soon be lost to our attention. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast, and if you're interested in learning more about the death of Elizabeth Short, all of the sources are listed in the show notes at crimebistro.com. 
If you have a theory or a comment of your own to share, feel free to head over and visit the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram at Crime Bistro Podcast to leave a comment and to see some behind-the-scenes updates on the cases to come. With that, this story is coming to a close, so thanks again, and as always, until next time.